Dr. Whalen's the author of The Consolation of Rhetoric, a study of St. John Henry Newman's epistemological thought. He has also published articles and essays on Renaissance poetry, nonfiction prose, and the history and philosophy of liberal arts education. A frequent lecturer here as well, Dr. Whalen addresses topics such as liberal arts education, Western imagination, the writings of Shakespeare, St. John Henry Newman, T.S. Eliot, Walker Percy, and I included John Sr. And it is our pleasure to welcome him here back to Sacred Heart and let's give him a nice, warm, authentic welcome. Thank you. Thank you, Mike, for that far too kind uh, introduction. It, in fact, it's an honor and a pleasure for me to be here. Um, the, uh, you, you've had something of a hiatus, haven't you? What, 18 months, a year and a half of no uh, meetings like this, so I, I feel kind of guilty being here. What, what you, what, you don't need a lecture, you need a dance. <laughs> you know, you, you, or, or at least more wine and conversation. You know, I don't know, I don't know if my going on and on is of much, uh, much help. But uh, I promise not to go on and on too much. Uh, uh, I was asked to speak about John Senior's uh, uh, earlier book, The Death of Christian Culture. Uh, it's, it's a rich book and in some ways a, a complicated one, so tonight's talk will not be more, I promise, than four or five hours. Um, ha, 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 you know. Um, I'm going to adjust this. I don't know if it's really necessary, but we'll see. In fact, now that I think of it, I'm, I've been told in the past I need to turn these off because sometimes they interfere with microphones. So let me do this. Let me see if I can do this without calling the police. Do you know how that works? Do you know how some, if you push the wrong button, you somehow get SWAT teams descending? <laughs> Slide to power off. Okay, so that, is that better? <laughs> okay, all right, very good. Well, um, again, I, I've been asked to speak about the wisdom of John Sr.'s death of Christian culture. Uh, first, I should say I have no pretense of being an expert. Uh, in, in John Sr., not even an expert in the death of Christian culture, other than we're all living through it. Um, <laughs> you guys need a cheerful, Mike, do you, are you sure you want to talk about, the, the, you need a cheerful subject, not, not a subject like this. Uh, there are going to be some grim moments, I'm sorry to say. The book is a very serious book. It's, 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 it has its humor, it has its light moments, but it is, um, serious both in its the substance uh, of its topic and in its um, in its um, gravity, both substantial and grave in some ways. Uh, as I say, I'm no expert in in senior, but my wife and I were both uh, very blessed to be students of John Seniors as undergraduates at the University of Kansas. Um, uh, I was also blessed to meet with him frequently in my graduate years as well. Um, happy to have published his book of poems, Pale Horse, Easy Rider. Um, and, and no, that isn't a plug. Although if tonight's talk is any kind of a plug, it would be an encouragement to read The Death of Christian Culture. 
um, uh, whatever my failures might be this evening, don't take it out on the book or on John Sr. It's really worth reading. I highly, highly commend it. Um, so rather, rather than simply provide a summary of the book or, or offer some kind of academic thesis and, and, and analysis uh, or treatment, what I thought I would do tonight, um, and I'll try to be expeditious in doing it, um, is just what the title of this presentation uh, uh, points toward or suggests, and that is highlight, I'll highlight some important insights and points of emphasis in the book and illustrate those points uh, by, by noting, reading certain passages from the book. So one of the things that you notice when you pick up the book is that um, for, it was published in 1978, um, uh, but in certain rather sober, somber perhaps ways, it sounds as if it was attuned to today's headlines. I, I just thought I would I'm sorry, this is going to be grim. Uh, I thought I would season, so to speak, the, the talk by lifting this very short quote to introduce the lecture. The American people have not lost their common sense of decency and shame, but the enemy is at the switchboards and people are confused. Reactions are paralyzed. The 2% is loose. I'll explain later what that 2% refers to. The 2% is loose. The pervert wears the laurel, the arsonist, and the rioter the crown. It's as almost as if he's reading our, our newspapers. Uh, but first, let me, let me characterize the book. It was uh, published, as I mentioned, in 1978. Uh, it's a collection of 11 essays. Um, some of which were written earlier and, and published in part uh, in earlier publications, like uh, uh, one was published in a law review, there was another that appeared in an education journal. So, it, but it, isn't a, it doesn't have that haphazard quality that most collections of essays have. It, it holds together. There is a kind of integrity. There is a kind of unity in the book, even though one chapter may be about a literary topic and an, another chapter may be about a, a legal topic. Um, uh, in it, you, you can certainly see that, that um, uh, its author, John Sr., is a literary man. He's a man of literature. There are discussions there of important books and authors scattered throughout. Um, you can also see that he's a teacher. The book, um, Mike, you can correct me if you, if you think otherwise, but the book has the, 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 the most excellent teachers um, have the ability to captivate and illuminate both a beginner and an expert at the same time. I, that's just murder, it's just hard. Uh, but but John, you can see that John Sr. is very much a teacher in this book because while illuminating whatever it is he's talking about, um, he will hold the attention and, and, and not just as a gimmick, not just hold the attention, but he'll illuminate the understanding even of somebody who already knows a great deal about what he's talking about and at the same time, someone who doesn't know much about what he's talking about isn't lost, follows along, is able to, to, to um, um, apprehend the argument and the burden of his, his discussion. Um, you, you, in fact, it's, it's, not even, it's not written to be a 
primer or anything of the sort, but uh, for a student who's never learned anything much about metaphysics or realism or literary modernism uh, or um, uh, apologetical realism, um, uh, uh, the, the nature of monastic education, things as various as that, can find in this book a good introduction, really. Um, when it was published, it, it was not uh, John Senior's first book, but it was his first book in a long, long time. And it immediately garnered a great deal of attention. All kinds of people uh, uh, read it, thought about it, wrote about it. Um, it captured a lot of attention, um, and it, uh, it added to his, his reputation, which was already quite high. But, uh, <laughs> interestingly, in, in, in the academic world, John Senior was a professor, uh, at the University of Kansas, and in the academic world, the book was disdained. The book, sadly, the book was regarded as insufficiently scholarly. It wasn't freighted with footnotes and the apparatus that one usually finds in scholarly tomes. Um, but I don't really think that's it. I think the fact is that he was attacking some quite uh, sacred academic cows, and that's really what, um, uh, resulted in, in, in many of his peers, not his friends, but many of his peers looking down there rather, um, not, shall we say, not terribly humble noses uh, at, at, his, uh, at his book, while probably all the while realizing uh, that the erudition in it exceeded anything they could hope to achieve themselves. It has become since then something of a classic. I don't, if, I don't know how many people here have uh, heard of it, uh, but, but out and about, I bump into people all the time who reference John Senior and reference this book. It is really something of a classic. In certain places, it, it can be dated. You, you occasionally become aware that you're reading a book that was published in 1978. Um, um, uh, for instance, he, does, he discusses literary modernism and what, what are some of the ills attending uh, to that, but he never even mentions something that we've all heard of, probably ad nauseum, and that is postmodernism. You know, he doesn't enter into a discussion of post, but, but really he does because the seeds, they're all implicit, as it were, in modernism itself. Uh, but that's the way in which the book is dated. He, he, he's, he's not talking about current events, although, <laughs> as, as I mentioned, in some strange ways he seems to be. Um, his grasp, however, of the malaise that grips the West is exact and even disturbingly perceptive. He, uh, he gets very much down to the ground in understanding what ails us and what is required. To, the book is not about a reversal of those things, uh, but he does discuss some elements of what is necessary to restore or reanimate Christian culture, and we'll talk about that in a little bit. But if you don't know anything about John Sr., that's, that's fine. Who, who was John Sr.? Um, he was born and raised in Long Island, in New York, and for his entire life had something of the East Coast New Yorker's um, um, sharp uh, wit and um, uh, readiness to, 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 uh, to punch when, when needed. His, his rhetoric gives ample evidence of his, his wit and his um, Gentle, gentle and genteel 
willingness to combat, to enter into combat. He uh, uh, was a master of argument. He studied at Columbia University under the uh, poet and scholar Mark Van Doren, for whom he had a lifelong reverence. Um, uh, Dr. Senior obtained his PhD from Columbia. Um, he taught uh, at several Eastern schools, Bard College, Hofstra, uh, but then he moved to the University of Wyoming in Laramie for several years before finally settling in the University of Kansas. I happened, just a couple years ago, I happened to be having dinner with a, um, uh, probably the world's greatest expert on um, uh, Henry Adams. And uh, he was a scholar from, I, I forget where he was attached, maybe it was Cornell. But at any rate, um, uh, he was from an Ivy League in, institution and his bio had indicated he had been at Hofstra and Bard and et cetera. So that just rang a little bell. And at dinner I asked him, um, did you know way back, because this fellow was, was up there in years, did you, did you happen to know of a John Senior? The guy almost jumped, I'm not exaggerating, he almost jumped out of his chair and considering his age, that was a feat. He, he, he leaned forward and, and said with intensity, John Senior, what ever happened to him? What happened to him? What do you know about him? He, he, he hadn't heard of or thought of John Senior in decades, but he remembered as a young man, this brilliant young man who outshone everyone else, I think it was at Hofstra, and, and the minute I mentioned his name was aflame with interest and whatever, he just disappeared. Well, he moved to Wyoming, you see. He moved to Wyoming. That's disappearing. If you're from New York, moving to Wyoming is disappearing. Um, so so uh, I was able to bring him up to date a little bit. Uh, um, but that, that, that's, uh, that, that, that's a whole other talk, right? That, um, uh, that departure to, to, the, to the West to, to Wyoming was a kind of turning his back on a certain kind of world and a deliberate embrace of another kind of world. Maybe we can talk about that a little later. He, as I say, settled at the University of Kansas and with two other professors, Dennis Quinn and Frank Nellick, he established and taught in uh, what is known as the Integrated Humanities Program for the rest of his career and that's where my wife and I um, encountered Dr. Senior, first met him. Uh, this was a two-year program. You might, you might think of it as a kind of undergraduate immersion program in the great books. Uh, the class was six credit hours per semester, so it wasn't just a regular class. It was kind of like doubled up and it had lots of contact hours, lots of time spent with the students, uh, and it lasted for two full years. Um, the program uh, became quite, uh, well, quite famous, it became quite controversial without any overt um, attempts or efforts at proselytizing the, the program resulted in lots of conversions. Many students ended up becoming Catholic. Uh, and again, not because they were being taught catechism classes in the lectures. The lectures, for crying out loud, they're mostly about pagans. <laughs> uh, but, but it turns out, you turn someone, and this is, this is, this is a profound truth, ha ha. This is, you'll see it's a bad pun in a minute. Um, it, you, you turn someone on to the truth of things to the reality of reality, we all tend to live in our heads, right? You know, you turn someone on to the reality of truth and way leads on to way. You know, they, they will end up at the source, God willing, they will end up at the source of all truth. And so that's why there are those conversions, not because they were out, you know, uh, browbeating people into the Catholicism. 
Um, uh, but because of those conversions, in part, it became controversial, and uh, they, they ended up, gosh, by the time I arrived there in the fall of 1978, they were, they were in knockdown, drag-out arguments about academic freedom, about the legitimacy of the, studying the great books, et cetera, et cetera. It was, it was quite a time of controversy. And that was right about when he published this book. Um, if you're interested in biography more, I highly, here we go, another plug. Uh, I don't get any money from any of this, so don't worry. Uh, Father uh, Francis Bethel, a monk at the Clear Creek Monastery in Oklahoma, wrote an intellectual biography of John Sr. Um, and it's called John Sr. and the Restoration of Realism. It's, it's an excellent book. I, I really do recommend it. So, the death of Christian culture and other lighthearted topics. Culture in crisis. Culture, John Sr. says, as in agriculture, is the cultivation of the soil from which men grow. To determine proper methods, we must have a clear idea of the crop. What is man? The Penny Catechism asks this question and answers, a creature made in the image and likeness of God to know, to love, and to serve him. Culture, therefore, clearly has this simple end, no matter how complex or difficult the means. Our happiness consists in a perfection that is no mere endless hedonistic whoosh through space and time, but the achievement of that definite love and knowledge which is final and complete. All the paraphernalia of our lives, intellectual, moral, social, psychological, and phys physical, has this end. Christian culture is the cultivation of saints. So, so culture, as John Sr. understands it, is, is not the symphony. It's not libraries. It's not teacups. It's not caviar. It is champagne, but it, I'm, that's a joke. Um, it, 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 culture is not the paraphernalia that we often think of. If a city says, we want, to, we want to beef up the culture in this town, that's what they mean. Maybe not caviar so much as symphonies and, and, and whatnot, art libraries. Uh, that's not really what culture is. Culture, uh, 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 Dr. Senior understands, arises out of the cult. Cult is, not, is etymologically rooted in the word culture. Um, and that is whatever a people worship, Whatever they, in fact, really worship, that is going to spin off, in a kind of way, that people's culture. So if they worship money, if they worship power, if they worship pleasure, if they worship God, all those objects of worship, as it were, have a determinative consequence with respect to what the culture becomes what the libraries tend to feature, what the symphonies tend to play, what the museums tend to, to display. So, so in other words, um, culture is, is in a way more, I'm overstating it a little bit, but it's more like an accidental byproduct of what a people worship, whether formally worship or informally worship, such as the worship of pleasure, um, the, 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 the culture is going to be a kind of byproduct of, of the cult, of that. And frankly, I think that phrase, hedonistic whoosh, is a pretty apt description of contemporary culture. 
what do we as a people worship? Maybe not, you know, Tom, Dick, or Harry, you and me individually, but what as a people do we tend to place at the summit of our affections? And it's probably, I, I, hedonistic whoosh is pretty good. It's pretty good. I, it, it, at least it looks awfully familiar to me. Um, um, however, Christian culture is rooted, as he said, in knowing, loving, and serving. And so it does more than spin off accidental byproducts of an amiable sort, like, oh, those are nice things. No, it's more than that. Even something like work, even something like family, even something like home becomes ennobled and leavened as a part of Christian culture. In, this is John Sr. In the ordinary life of men in Christian culture who work not only in the sweat of their brows, but for the love of their families, there is also love of work. When men cut wood or go to war or make love to their wives, or when women spin or wash or reciprocate that love, they are working not only to get the job done so that children will be born and grow and have clothes to wear and food to eat. They are working so that those children will one day be saints in heaven. They are working as the very instruments of God's love to create a kind of heavenly garden here and now in the home by which each axe becomes a violin, each loom a harp, each day a prayer, each hour a psalm. So, so I, I hasten to clarify that for John Sr., Christian culture does not mean, however, a world, of, a world that's flawless in its social, political, and artistic conduct, drenched in overt piety and sickly sweet in its good intentions. That's not what he means. The cultivation of saints does not occur in a spotless, sanitized, grinning utopia. The world has fallen, after all. But the worship of a loving God does spin off, so to speak, a culture where standards of charity, basic morality, basic modesty, the aspiration towards beauty, the appreciation of good order, magnanimity, courtesy, and more, all these things are at least recognized in such a culture, even when they are not lived up to. Christian culture is not a perfect culture, but it is a kind of repentant one, so to speak, one that loves imperfectly and strives to do better. Depletion. When the intelligentsia of the 19th, uh, excuse me, when the intelligentsia and the elite of the 19th century at the latest, it actually started much earlier, but certainly by the 19th century, a determinative proportion of the elite or the intelligentsia decided that Christianity was a dream. It was up to them whether it was a good dream or a bad dream, but a dream. And the good life meant something like the whoosh of pleasure or money or undefined progress then the cultural capital built up by Christianity over many centuries begins to be depleted. The scattered worship of worldly and ultimately even of demonic things edges out 
the remnants of Christian culture. For senior, ours is a late stage of this depletion. I don't know, maybe it's beyond a late stage now. The depletion is largely complete, maybe now complete, and there is virtually no Christian culture left. This is senior. So many are shocked today to find their children lacking in religious motivations, lacking patriotism, lacking even a very clear sense of moral responsibility. They fail to realize that these virtues are in great part culturally determined. We have lived on cultural capital from a past generation having failed to counteract the depletion. In the late 19th century, the past was junked and in the 20th, we have reaped the wind. Well, I think we all can agree that wind has become a tempest. Senior again, one or two percent, and that's where the two percent comes in from that opening quote, one or two percent of any society is always subcultural. Okay, so some of these words are harsh. One or two percent of any society is always subcultural. The Trotskyite, the communist, the arsonist, the homosexual, the assassin, these are obviously dangerous. But the enemy I am talking about is the one lurking in the guts of the whole nation, like an invisible and deadly virus. It is not an action, but an attitude that says everyone has a right to arson, murder, rape, because doing those things is necessarily included under the rubric of freedom, of doing what one wants. Not what I want, or what you want, but what someone wants. In a word, we have raised the abnormal and the aberrant to the condition of a human right. The beast is loose among us, and he is welcome in our universities and homes. An alien thing is tearing at the vitals of all order, all law, all justice, and we must, but we will not, expel it. Again, some harsh words. As he says elsewhere, weakened as we are, I should say to teachers and to parents, look out. The enemy is at the gates. You are about to be invaded or at any rate suffer a series of raids, of vandalism from the barbaric hordes pushed down into the colleges from research institutes and the federal government and from colleges into secondary schools on all the way to daycare centers, the nursery, and if possible, the womb. By the way, that was from an article he wrote prior to Roe v. Wade, okay? Prior to Roe v. Wade, all the way, if possible, to the womb. I mean that toward life, that attitude, excuse me, toward life, that Matthew Arnold called Philistine. I have just called it barbaric. And that attitude is against culture and for nothing but what it calls practical and scientific. So, okay, grim enough. Let's get grimmer. What are the salient relevant features of an age in which Christian culture is gutted, savaged, or ransacked? For Senior, he identifies the, these salient features, the corruption of the imagination, the corruption of intellect or reason, and their replacement with something he calls, this might surprise, surprise us by its apparent gentleness, but the replacement of imagination reason with something he calls sentimentalism. As we'll see, it's not 
so gentle after all. So for senior, imagination is the soil out of which our reason extracts concepts, ideas, and truths. Imagination is not your ability to imagine curly-headed snails or deer with, you know, cat's heads or something like that, okay? It's not the kindergarten, I don't mean kindergarten here, I'm, I'm, I'm speaking you know, in a national, national cultural context. It's not the kind of kindergarten teachers, be imaginative, think up something that's never been thought of before. It's not what he means. He means the kind of, um, uh, the, the furniture that our minds are stored with without our even thinking about or trying, you know, what, what is in your memory? What, what is in our memories without our, deliberate stocking uh, thereof, stocking of them. Um, what was sort of the default setting of the mind? If you sterilize the imagination or more properly habituated to nourish only ideas pertaining to the practical and to the scientific or the pseudo-scientific, then reason's grasp of supernatural realities weakens and finally fails. This, by the way, is, um, if you're interested in this idea of how the imagination and, and uh, can be rendered sterile, such that the reason can't really even imagine a god, the reality of god, other than as just the very most abstract of concepts. Um, read this book, for one thing, but also there's a, 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 a wonderful essay by uh, St. John Henry Newman called A Form of Infidelity of the Day, and you'll see this discussed there as well. So, so in order to counteract the sterilization of the imagination, uh, in order to prop up our ability to conceive of God, we think maybe we just need to talk about God more, but that doesn't work. It has a limited effect when the imagination itself is habituated utterly to the man-made worlds of virtual reality, of screens, when we are isolated from the created order and we're immersed in the moral squalor of relentlessly selfish pursuits. I mean, even if, even if one, even if a given person in particular is not relentlessly selfish, when the culture at large is, that's going to stain or taint the imagination even of an unselfish person. They're just going to see the world in a, in a, in a way where selfish pursuit is normative, is a kind of taken for granted default setting. And that's going to interfere with our ability even to imagine. So we do not deny the existence of God so much as find him impossible to imagine, find him simply irrelevant to our world and to our lives. Senior says, surrounded as we are by a hedonistic and even demonic imaginative ground, it is not impossible, of course, but very difficult for the intellect to grasp ideas like spirit, soul, or God. We are doubly blocked. To restore the imagination, we must put the intellect in its proper place. But to put the intellect first, we must have restored the imagination. So it's a paradox. The direct study of philosophy and theology will not cure a diseased imagination because anyone with a diseased imagination is incapable of studying philosophy and theology. So what do you do? We'll talk about that in a few minutes. So the point though is with the imagination neutered, reason, our ability to think clearly is crippled. Sentimentalism replaces thinking. Feeling replaces thought. It replaces reasoning. It replaces mental discipline. 
feeling Trump's intellect. This is senior. A vicious sentimentalism is poisoning the wells. It is in the universities and colleges, the churches, the entertainment industry generally, movies, television, newspapers, magazines, popular songs, in the wells from which we get our spiritual drink, from which our whole cultural life is irrigated. Sentimentalism, as the constitutive parts of the word imply, is the subjugation of the mental to the sentient. That is, it is an attempt to found a philosophy on feeling. Man has sentiments, of course. It is unreasonable in the name of reason to exclude them. Sentiments, if subject to reason, give it, that is reason, force, color, alacrity, and verve. Sentiment is good. Sentimentality is subjecting reason to desire. As Dante says of the carnal sinners in the inferno, putting reason to the use of feeling rather than the right way around. The doctrine of sentimentalism asserts that thought is an instrument in the service of doing what one feels like. The sentimentalist does not simply subject reason to desire, he denies the difference. He reduces reason to desire and says that all problems are essentially emotional or environmental. So as I said, sentiment or sentimentalism isn't you know, Hallmark cards. It's not cute little cartoon birds. It's a profound disorder whereby, the subject, whereby reason is either identified with desire or reduced, subjugated to the ordering of the appetites and the will Reason, in other words, is not in command. It is, a, it is enslaved, okay? And feeling trumps intellect. Feeling replaces reasoning. It's not so benign or benevolent. Um, in our own times, in our own times, the triumph of sentimentalism is very easy to see, very. It can be seen in the way that claims of victimhood, hurt feelings, being offended, and feeling threatened. Not the reality in any of these categories, but merely having subjective feelings about such things drive our political and social discourse when coupled with an approved list of topics. One need not, indeed, in, in, in our day, in our day, one need not, indeed, should not reason about such claims as that reasoning itself is felt to be a form of violence. By the way, you've noticed, I'm sure, how in our day today now, not all feelings are created equal. If one is a member of the victim elite, say, someone who claims to be transgendered, then his or her feelings of being marginalized matter far more than someone who is not a member of the victim elite, say some poor middle-class, boringly heterosexual housewife who fears being marginalized at a school board meeting. You know, those feelings, <laughs> the, those, those feelings don't count. They, those don't matter, they're not on the approved list. At any rate, emotion drives public discourse, as, as we all know, not reasoned argument. One class of opinion now shuts down another class of opinion by ad hominem name calling, calling someone a hater, while at the same time that same class of opinion foments as much hatred as possible 
in order to build capital and monopolize power. So this business of sentimentality is serious. Modernism. Much of the death of Christian culture treats the literary manifestation of disordered imagination, reason, and sentimentalism uh, in the movement, the literary and cultural movement called modernism. This, as I mentioned, might be considered dated um, um, because what we now call postmodernism isn't brought up, but the book and the discussion remain apt. And this is because modernism is, quote, an attitude toward change, a theory of history become habitual. And that theory holds that change or progress is inherently good. And therefore, by logical extension, the past is inherently burdensome. Permanence is a kind of prison. And tradition is a rigid, lifeless thing, best buried out of sight, where it can rot in peace. This is senior. The motive force of modernism is, as the name suggests, the perpetual urge for the new. Not the real, not the true, not the ideal, not even the evil, not the power or the glory or the lust, but all these things for the sake of the new. Cut off from reality, the modernist, insisting on the new, very quickly exhausts the contents of his memory and proceeds to invent a new mental image in place of reality. Therefore, he becomes a worshiper of images. The lust for the new, the exotic, is lust for the abnormal. It is against nature, and that means against human nature. The doctrine that knowledge is sensation, the modernists have this doctrine that, that knowledge is not a matter of intellect, it's actually just a matter of, of, of kind of tactile sensation. The doctrine that knowledge is sensation drives the modernist away from whatever he had and whatever he is. In order to renew the instantaneous sensation, he must flee whatever it is that he has, the bourgeois, the conventional, and he must flee the known and conventional past. In a word, he must flee civilization to seek the barbaric and the decadent. So in clear and penetrating detail, Dr. Senior identifies the rejection of reality and even of existence itself that lies at the heart of modernism. The lust for change on the grand modernistic scale is at once a desire to escape what is and a desire to invent an entirely imagined, man-made and man-disposable reality. Oddly enough, oddly enough, the modern emotion par excellence is boredom. This is senior. The word ennui derives from the Latin in odium from a root meaning at once to hate and to stink. Modernistic boredom is not the exhaustion that follows upon excess, like Lord Byron's. It is positive disgust, and finally a hatred of existence itself. To modernists, the world is not an accident, as science led the men of the Enlightenment to believe. The world is rather a deliberate, malicious, and very dirty trick. Everything that is, is wrong, corrupting Alexander Pope, and the only salvation is destruction. Destruction was my Beatrice, says the poet Mellarmé. So, Dr. Senior wrote a sequel to the death of Christian culture called, fittingly enough, The Restoration, about which you heard a few minutes ago. 
It is not too much to say, however, that the seeds of that restoration may be found in this earlier book. Um, I, I hope you're tired of grim and dismal. And <laughs> are you ready for a little bit more light? That's actually a Goethe pun. More light, more light, mehr Licht. Okay. So the seeds for a restoration are found in the death of Christian culture as well. We'll briefly identify four avenues of this restoration, and that would mean means of nourishing the soil of the imagination, disciplining the intellect, relishing the given reality, and ultimately returning to the hardwired, real purpose of mankind, which again, going back to the beginning, is to know, to love, and to serve God. The first, no surprise, the first, the first I'm going to talk about, I'm not creating a hierarchy here, the first is education. A number of the essays in The Death of Christian Culture address, unsurprisingly, education. This is because the relation of education to culture is immediate. The function, John Sr. says, the function of education is to conserve the cultural organism, to make civilized behavior available to the next generation. Again, culture is difficult to engender and create in a direct and targeted way. But the closest we come to creating culture is maintaining culture, that is, handing on to others the heritage we have received. Anyone who cares, this is senior, anyone who cares seriously about education will simply unplug the television set, learn at least some Latin and a little Greek, and read the best vernacular literature. The cure to the deadly disease of modern cure culture is to put ourselves under the causes of health. In the particular case of literature, these are primarily the Greek and Latin classics, and the classics of various national literatures of Europe written in imitation of them. The shameful state of culture can be improved as soon as we want to improve it. So education, of course, is a very large topic in its own right, but certainly the essentials of an education in support of Christian culture include more than Greek and Latin, more than good books and a classical curriculum. They also, it also includes, an, uh, also essential, are good or genuine teachers. You must find the right kind of teacher Classroom teaching has sunk to an appalling mess. It is no wonder students listen to the Maharishi or the latest moral arsonist. Teaching is first, and the first quality of the teacher is his own freedom, his moral rectitude, his character. We want a good man, strong, temperate, prudent, just. Second, he must have a knack for teaching his subject. He must have a certain fire, a certain spirit, a certain personality. There are many different kinds of these personalities, a thousand kinds, but in every case, a competence in the communication of the subject must be there. Referencing Plato, Senior also points out that the bond between students and a teacher is a kind of friendship, the friendship that occurs when people are pursuing a common good together. Recognizing that what they're doing together serves something larger than themselves, teachers and students operate in a context properly understood as a kind of love. Friendship is a species of love. Love for each other, love for the truth or what is learned, and love for or gratitude toward God in whose light the intellect is illumined. Far from being a sentimental indulgence in wishful thinking, 
locating love at the heart of education is nothing less than seeing clearly for senior, the distinguishing feature of Christian culture itself. Christianity, he says, sees the world and its history as a dramatic struggle between the forces of love and the forces of hatred, between thy will be done and non serviam, the I will not serve of Satan. The theme of much modern literature is the advancement of hatred. This hatred is the final cause of our cultural disease. The reforming of education, which must begin with the study of classics, will be sterile and meaningless without a return to the animating principle of our civilization, which again is love. Second, home. The home or family is not an extensive topic uh, for this book, but when it is mentioned, we see its centrality to Christian culture. In a cynical age, and in an age where the very idea of family is either lost or unrecognizable, it may be, seem the height of wishful thinking to say that the home is its own school for saints. But remember that passage I read a moment ago about home and work and men and women. As mentioned earlier, working for the kingdom of heaven occurs even as we work and raise our families here. So family life, for all of its difficulties, is best compared, as in that passage, to a garden. Why? Because in a garden, beauty and repose and toil and fecundity abide together, as they do in the home. And they're all ordered, again, by love. Love of God, love of each other. Contemplative life. The greatest need in the church today, says Senior, is the contemplative life of monks and nuns. It is well known, probably to many here, that Dr. Senior is a kind of godfather to the Benedictine monastery at Clear Creek in Oklahoma. His long and repeated exhortations on behalf of monasticism and the contemplative life generally finally bore fruit in the establishment of this monastery some years ago. But his advocacy of monasticism must not be seen as some kind of nostalgic or romantic attachment to some expression of the faith, nor as some kind of spiritual personal preference. I prefer vanilla, you prefer monasticism. <laughs> Instead, Dr. Senior points out repeatedly that the contemplative life, the highest vocation available to men and women in this world, is the most complete expression of the marriage of Christ to his church. And thus, it is a foretaste of heaven itself. Not coincidentally, it is also the heaviest asset, so to speak, of Christian culture. It radically elevates the world around it in grace and truth, and thus gives living force to Christian life. A monk or nun comes to know God, Senior explains, through the experience of consummate union with him a union lived out directly and therefore abundantly fruitful, fruitful in grace that overflows into the world and leavens even the secular life, fruitful in beauty that establishes the standard even for arts outside the church, fruitful in manners that underscore the dignity of all life. That one doesn't get so much attention, by the way, that business of manners. 
fruitful in manners. I don't mean drinking tea with the pinky extended. I mean that the, the, the way the abbot washes your hands. The abbot washes your, the guest's hands as you enter the refectory for a meal as, as, a, as a sign not just of pleasing hospitality, but a sign that you are the image of God. I am washing the hands of the image of God. Okay, manners. Whew. Where was I? So, so um, fruitful in manners, fruitful also in holiness, that is a prime mark of the church itself and a resource for the rest of the Christian world, finally fruitful in the highest beauty of all, that is the beauty of souls becoming daily more Christ-like. In the contemplative life, Senior says, the martyr and the schoolman are welded to each other in the living flame of love. What is needed is the leaven of Saint Benedict, that a significant number of the church would sacrifice themselves to God as monks and nuns, and that a greater number among priests and laymen would participate in that sacrifice by nourishing our interior lives insofar as that is possible in the midst of our active duties in the world. The Catholic Church has a rich deposit of faith and a fecund life even today germinating in its soil. Martyrs, monks, and theologians all calling with the same quiet voice, not seeking publicity, calling softly but insistently from the Gulag archipelago and the desert cells, from isolated schools, and even from the silent hearts of nameless persons in the lonely crowds who kneel before the Blessed Sacrament, if they can find it, or stop to pray in empty churches and in quiet rooms. In turn, the hidden life of contemplatives seeks its consummation in death transfigured by love. It is no accident that the greatest doctor of the spiritual life is named St. John of the Cross. And this is the last one, the dark night and the cross. Death transfigured by love, or what he, Senior will call the death of love, means ultimately the death of Christ on the cross. This is not the extinction of love by death. So when he says the death of love, he doesn't mean the end of love. He doesn't mean love is killed. It means the reverse, the execution of death by love, the death of love. If anyone should want to convert America, he says, or even his friends or himself, he must risk the death of love. At the present hour, we are in a dark night of the church. The usual ways are lost. There is little comfort in the visible church now. The liturgy, set upon by thieves, is lying in a ditch. Contemplatives are mouthing political slogans in the streets. Nuns have lost their habits along with their virtues. Virgins, their virginity. Confessor, confessors, their consciences. Theologians, their minds. And if this is true, happy chance. Because there's absolutely no reason left to be Catholic now, except the only one there ever was. In the invisible life of the church, you will find the love of Christ. If you desire the conversion of America, if you believe in the right to life and have worked for constitutional change to protect unborn children, or if you love the poor, the persecuted, and the sick, if, in a word, you are generous, Christ says you must not just give something of yourself, but everything. The doctors of the Catholic Church teach very clear doctrine to generous souls. There is only one way to be a Christian. Christ said, I am the way. 
and his way is the way of the cross, which leads, as in his dying words he said, to a consummation in the death of love. Consummatum est. It is consummated. The work is done. The work of doing the will of the Father, which is to unite our hearts to his, reserving nothing. And so this, this death of love may sound very grim, but it is in fact at the very heart of the restoration of Christian culture, which is, which is not to instrumentalize union with God or the love of Christ. The reason why the love of Christ is good is because it produces good culture. <laughs> That's of course completely upside down. But it is, the, it is the point that until the culture is willing to embrace this death of love, the culture is lost. But it is also the case that that death of love is a gift, a gift that is constantly being outpoured in fact and in spirit through the channels of the church unstoppably. In a, one of his, um, in a nine word poem, Senior sums up this paradoxical combination of death and love in this way. It's called lauds, which of course means praise. Praise death, that Sahara, barren as Sarah and Elizabeth. Praise death, that Sahara, barren as Sarah and Elizabeth. Thank you very much.